You can get another cookie or drink or coffee or something right now. Be very silent and quiet. Uh, don't come up the middle. Uh, you're walking across live TV again. Okay, don't worry about it. We'll, be, we'll survive. Um, anyway, sacred cookies off the side. Uh, book group, book group, which is coordinated by George Sroka, is taking a break for the summer, but they are having a little social. If you're in the group, you know about it. If you're not in the group and you'd like to join, they usually pick a book that's recommended by Bill and Holly or, <laughs> um, or, or, or something that's triggered by ordinary life. And um, just let me know after class, and I'll be happy to give you George's contact information. Um, since George is not here, where are you, George? Anyway. Also, Ordinary Women of the Day are taking a break from our regular meetings, but we are doing food pantry distribution on the second Saturday of the month for Boynton. Uh, contact me after class if you want to join in. Frida is actually the one who coordinates, but I'll be happy to pass it on to her. Uh, financial donations, our sacred financial donations, are still, uh, we have the plates in the back for you to put money in. Wayne Herbert, did you put the plates out there? He did. All right. He did. So um, you can do it now or later or and afterwards. Don't get up in the middle of uh, Bill's fun, Bill and Holly's fun talk. But anyway, at some point, your uh, generosity is very, very much appreciated and all the money goes to a good cause. I'd like to remind everybody, or if you don't know, that there's a pride picnic after the 11 o'clock service. should start about noon. Uh, lunch is provided, but a $10 donation is... Um, is appreciated, so please join in. Uh, you're welcome to attend. Please join in and celebrate. And we will be meeting next Sunday, July 4th. We will be meeting. Now, did I leave anything off that y'all told me in the last 30 seconds when I was standing up here? Well, uh, John <laughs> yeah. and uh, Watson Bye. is not here today, our floor manager, because he has taken Olivia to New York for college Checkouts. Well, and she's in a film program. And a three-week film program. Yeah. I cannot believe that she's going off to college. What else? Stay for the picnic today. <laughs> Even if you didn't register, you can stay or come back if you um, want to leave here. Anything else? No. Announcements? No. I don't think so. So... No matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So, um, the way of paradox and contradiction, wisdom teachings for the living of ordinary life. This theme suggested itself to me and then to us out of the reading that Holly and I did during the shutdown. And so, I want to give credit to several sources many of whom you've heard me talk about before, Daramuda Muruku, Jim Finley, Alan Watts, writings by and about Meister Eckhart, a host of other people. Uh, Jim Finley is an authority on the mystics, especially Teresa of Avila, Meister Eckhart, and John of the Cross. And I have attended conferences with Finley over the years and gotten to know him. I tried to get him to come here um, but he was dealing with his wife, who was at the time very sick. She's since passed away. And um, 
he had asked us to read Dark Night of the Soul, Meister Eckhart, sermons by Meister Eckhart and um, Teresa of Avila, and I, I found it tough navigating those waters. And so I asked Jim Finley what he would recommend to me as a book that would help me understand Meister Eckhart better. And the book that he recommended was this one, The Way of Paradox by Cyprian Smith. And I gotta tell you, it's tough slogging too. <laughs> but somewhere during the time of the shutdown, as Holly and I continued to collaborate, we discovered more and more moments of entanglement. And one of them was when each of us bought the same book at the same time without telling each other about it. And, and this is the book, and please don't buy it. Why? <laughs> it's great. Oh, it's, I think no, no, he no, just it's, wants it's like, to it's tell like you about don't it throw me in the briar patch kind oh. of thing. Oh, I see. Well, Amazon told each of us to buy it. I think that was really what happened. Yeah. This is really a delightful <laughs> book. And it's where we found the inspiration for today's time which we're calling Pay Attention to the Nothing. And um, here's the passage that we read. Both of us uh, quoted it to each other like that the, the day after we found it. Um, the text that this passage from Eckhart is based on is Paul's conversion experience. Paul rose from the ground and with eyes open saw nothing. So this is what Eckhart says. Pay attention to the nothing the apostle saw with open eyes and consider what a wonderful word this nothing is. What does this mean? I say that it could mean four things. First, he saw the nothing that was God. Second, when he got up, he saw nothing but God. Third, in all things, he saw nothing but God. And fourth, when he saw God, he saw all things as nothing. He goes on. Which one of these is true for you depends on how you look, not what you see. So pay attention to this nothing in the way you look, and in everything, find God with open eyes. Pay attention to the nothing. And you, you also, um, those of you who are here, I know, I know you well enough to know that you know that the most useful, wisest spiritual teachings cannot really be put into words. Mm -hmm. But we continue to try. Yeah. Non-duality, as Finley said, communicates itself. And he discovered this when he was trying to write Thomas Merton's uh, biography which he titled Merton's Palace of Nowhere. Uh, you know that Jim Finley ran away from home when he was 17. He was raised in an abusive, alcoholic family. His mother was a devout Roman Catholic. His father was a raging, abusive alcoholic. He ran away from home because in high school he had read something that had uh, by Thomas Merton, and he decided that he wanted to go to the Gethsemane Monastery where Merton was and Merton became his spiritual teacher. And after a number of years there, then he uh, left, Finley left, uh, 
he became a Buddhist, and he became a clinical psychologist, and now he's a spiritual director par excellence. He's an authority on the mystics and uh, really great things. And, uh, another uh, non-dual book that's good to know is Being, no Being Nobody Going Nowhere. So spiritual writings are full of contradiction and paradox. I thought of uh, many of the titles of Richard Orr's book, mm. Breathing Underwater. That's kind of hard to do. Falling Upward. Dancing While Sitting Down. <laughs> so you know the teachings of Jesus are full of paradox and contradiction, the biggest of which and he said this over and over, if you want to have life, you must be willing to give it up. So here's Meister Eckhart introducing into the mix the story of Saul, who became Paul. It's a story of paradox and contradiction. And uh, it's a story of great transformation, mm -hmm. which we all say we desperately want, but at the same time, we're really wary of. Mm -hmm. So we ourselves are paradox and contradiction. Yeah. I'm generally one of those people who's wary of instant conversion moments. I think kind of in the same way I'm wary of instant coffee that just sort of <laughs> dissolves in <laughs> hot water. But if we interpret scripture mystically, we might see that the nothing was actually the creative fecund ground from which everything came. Um, I've talked a little bit about Catherine Keller in here, who writes about the Tihomic theology, meaning the theology that comes from nothing. So nothingness is actually everything. So we might also see that if we're present to that nothing, to the presence of possibility that these conversion moments are always available, the deeper we go into that Tihomic theology, the more we learn how to see. That's what the poem says. It's how you see, not what you see. The simplest meaning of conversion is to change. And we are changing all the time. By the time you leave this class, something in your body will have changed. You're constantly cycling new air through your body and breathing old air out. So we are kind of like the universe, a kind of a, a professor of mine once said, a chaotic force one that blends chaos and order that's happening all the time in our bodies. So Descartes, famous philosopher, introduced dualism, uh, not introduced, he kept dualism going maybe for longer than it needed to. But philosophers used to imagine that the soul he included, he in fact introduced this idea, the aspect of God that is within us was contained in this tiny, little walnut-shaped thing in the center of our brains called the pineal gland. He imagined that light transmitted images to the brain, which then activated these animal spirits to carry information to the rest of the body. <clears throat> Perhaps this pineal gland, which we still don't know a whole lot about but have proven some things about it, was just mysterious enough to be able to contain the great mystery that is God. Incidentally, the primary function of the pineal gland is to receive information about the state of light and dark that gets transmitted through the eyeball. I love that metaphor for today, the state of light and dark from the environment. 
Jesus knew and he taught that the human soul was both light and dark, blind and seeing. He knew that our growth depended on integrating these aspects of ourselves, our dark and our light, of being constantly humbled by our incredible capacity for both harm and healing. But I'll, this is not in my notes, but this past week, my husband and my children and I were on kind of a civil rights tour, um, really more like a pilgrimage through Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and then through New Orleans, which is more of a celebratory place. But, um, but it just, you know, just we, you become so aware that the human capacity for harm and hurt is so large, and we were faced with that time and time and time again. I've often wished that I could speak in pictures, like as I talked that there weren't words coming out, but just open my mouth and be able to give you the picture that I'm trying to paint. That's probably why I'm an artist, Terry. <laughs> but you know, these instead of images flowing forth, I also wish that I could pepper these images with the layers of sounds and textures in the moment I'm trying to paint. So as I'm sitting here, I'm wondering, how can I help you hear this kind of I was writing this early in the morning in a hotel room while my kids were still sleeping and my husband was snoring. The children are breathing, the birds are chirping, the traffic's going by, all these layered sounds. I can't speak that, but it was all happening. But when we engage our kind of active imagination, we can be transported to another time and another place. The words and the stories we tell help us relate to the environment we're in. They, learn, they help us learn about history and help us share our personal experience. And stories can also help us heal. Here's a true story. I was in Montgomery, Alabama last week. It's a small town, uh, just under 200,000 people. With many shops and storefronts now closed, I don't know if that's entirely a result of COVID. It's a bit of a sleepy town. Before, we had been to the Equal Justice Initiative a couple years ago and went back with the kids. But it's the place where the domestic slave trade thrived, it's also the place where the civil rights movement was birthed. Excuse my shirt. Yeah, it's EJI, blue, extra large, favorite color, just in case you ever want to get Bill a shirt. Um, but there are signs scattered throughout the city that tell the story of how this city came to be. And one, I was telling Bill before we, we started that, you know, in one exit you'll see like, the first White House of the Confederacy the next exit you see Peace and Justice Memorial. It's this place of contradictions. So in fits and starts, these other signs have started to kind of crop up that include the not so pretty past, thanks to the work of people like Brian Stevenson and his colleagues at the Equal Justice Initiative. I learned, for example, that Montgomery's primary commerce dealt in human beings between 1820 and 1860 and that the first aggressive act of the Civil War was issued with a decree from this very building to fire upon Fort Sumter. I also learned that this building was a common site for lynchings. During the founding years of Montgomery, the number of enslaved in Alabama grew from 41,000 to 450,000. And they proceeded to build the roads, buildings, and railroads that allowed that city to thrive at the time. It was a major commerce site. And for a relatively small city, Montgomery had the second largest population of enslaved people. This city was founded on agony, and, some, and uh, so the agony of some and the prosperity of others. 
The older buildings that still line Commerce Street, down which enslaved people were shackled and paraded for auction, want that, these are the buildings that once warehoused them. So one such building is the Equal Justice Initiative. And right when you walk inside, this is on the wall. Not only did the enslaved people make the bricks that created the buildings, they were also warehoused in them. So they essentially were forced to construct their own captivity. To be led out of our past, to kind of bring forth the stories that are within us, not just inside of us, but in our society, the past that bind, uh, binds us to an unhealed present, it helps to engage with the stories, and especially those that have been left out and denied, so that we as a society might begin to tell new stories that heal and expose us to multiple perspectives. Eddie Glaude wrote, and I, I love him, he's a Princeton professor, commentator. He wrote recently a fantastic book on James Baldwin. He said, who and what we choose to exclude exposes the limits of our ideas about justice. So there's another kind of story, as Bill said earlier, that is truer than true. This is the type of story that we're going to lead you through today. It has all the elements of a good tale, I think. A villain and a hero, drama, climax, and resolution. And this story, and I refer to him throughout as Saul because he's not yet taken on the name Paul. Saul is led out from his life of injustice. As we tell it, and we'll get there, we're not there yet, <laughs> we want you to kind of drop in and engage your active imaginations. Allow yourself to kind of descend into the scene. Imagine those layered sounds that I tried to paint in here, which is in the hotel room that I told you about. Take root in one or all of the characters. Imagine who you are, where you might stand, what you might see and hear. In Dream Life, it's said, and you can say far more about this than I can, it's said that an aspect of self is represented in each of the characters in the dream. And each one of those characters reveals something to us. So perhaps this story can do the same. Notice for you what aspects you reject, embrace, question, or long for more of. Notice who you most relate to and who you feel most different from in the story. So um, depending on your church background, you grew up being exposed to different kinds of emphases. If you were Presbyterian, you know a lot about the Reformation and about Calvin. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're Roman Catholic, you know why there are seven sacraments instead of two. Um, if you're Lutheran, you can quote all the commandments. If you're an Episcopalian, you know which salad fork to use. <laughs> if you're good waspy And lineage. if you're Baptist, you know the Bible. Mm -hmm. You grew up being taught the Bible. So before telling the story of Saul, um, his conversion experience on the road to, to Damascus is something I bet everybody knows something about, whether they've got church background or not. And it is a story that has contributed to a lot of phrases in our language. He had a Damascus road experience, or I've seen the light, that, that sort of thing. So, um, Paul himself has had as much influence 
on the shape that the early church took as almost anybody. And he's also been incredibly misunderstood. Most of the New Testament writings are by Paul or one of his imitators. Before he became famous, Paul was known for, as a tent maker. He was a good rabbinic student. He's also famous for founding churches and writing letters, and he's also famous for being very difficult to understand. Now, in the process of talking about Paul and his writings, um, I may say some things that are new to some of you, especially about the content and structure of the Bible, especially those parts that have been attributed to Paul. In my experience, over the entirety of my ministry, one of the things I've discovered is that, the, that more often than not, it has been people who have claimed the most loyalty to the Bible who have known the least about it. So I want to be, be again kind of basic and then go deep. How many books are there in the Bible? Now, this is a trick question. None. Almost. They're documents, they're letters, they're writings. Um, much of the Bible's writings, like those attributed to Paul, are letters that were written not to us, but to specific congregations to deal with specific problems. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's 66 books in the Bible that most Protestants are familiar with. Um, easy to remember. Roman Catholics are familiar with 73 documents in their collection. And we divide them into what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both of those are misnomers. We should call them the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Collection. Old talk, something old and new is a distinctly, quote, Christian thing to do. Easy to remember, there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. Easy to remember. Old has three letters. Testament has nine, three and nine, 39. <laughs> New Testament... New has three, Testament has nine, three times nine is 27. Easy to remember. You'll never, never forget that again. Test next week. There will be a test, <laughs> I think. So, um, as I said, it's really more appropriate to refer to the writings we have as documents and not books, and this is especially true when it comes to the writings of Paul. Though 13 letters, this is the kind of thing that I saw in the Baptist church where I grew up. The Bible is a library divided into law, history, poetry, etc., etc. And notice at the bottom, all of those of Paul's letters, 13 letters in the Christian collection are attributed to Paul. Actually, he only wrote seven of them. Uh, six are attributed to people who were Paul's disciples, Paul's imitators. And it was a common thing in that time to use somebody else's name to gain authority for what you were, were, were putting out. The books in the Christian collection were not written in the order that they appear in the Christian collection. It was not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that were written first. The first composed document that we have is 1 Thessalonians, and then Galatians, and then Romans, and it is in Galatians that we find the first creed of the Christian church. 
know what it was? Anybody? I think you're going to tell us. Well, you're cheating. <laughs> I get to read ahead. No, it's not, I didn't put it in my notes. Oh. But, but we are going to deal with it. Uh, yeah. The first affirmation of faith in the Christian faith was Jesus is Lord, right? That's the first. The first creed is in Galatians. Paul didn't write it. He was quoting from an earlier part of the Christian movement. And that creedal statement was a baptismal formula that was used when people were baptized into the church. In Christ, there is neither Jew, Greek, slave or free, male or female. That's the first creed in the Christian church. So they dealt very early on with class, with race, with gender. And we lost that. I mean, you didn't think what happened to the Christian church. But we're going to get to that, that creed. So what I am sharing with you is, has been known since the early 19th century. And one of the ways the church has failed you is that it did not include this information in the Christian curric education curriculum of the churches where, you, where we grew up. We didn't learn this stuff in church. That's my rant for today. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Paul. We don't know when Paul was born, but it was probably sometime in the first decade of the first century. He was probably 10 years younger than Jesus. He lived a very vigorous, hard life. He was plagued by a physical malady, which we don't know what was. He was executed in Rome sometime in the mid-60s. Now, that's not in the Christian writings, but it's such a strong tradition that scholars think that it's, it's true. He was a Jew, born not in, in Jewish territory, but outside of Jewish territory. Scholars say that at the time of Paul, the number of Jews in that century in Rome or in that area of the world, numbered around 6 million. Uh, that's about a tenth of the population of Rome at the time. Hmm. Now, here's something that may come as a surprise to some of you. It did to students of mine when I was teaching in the seminary. Paul never knew Jesus. Paul never met Jesus. But nonetheless, almost immediately after Jesus' execution, he became a persecutor of Jesus' followers. And that he did this is an indication not only of his religious passion, but also that he knew enough about Jesus to think that he was dangerous and that the movement should be stopped. That's why you persecute people. So Paul is introduced to us in the book that we refer to as the Acts of the Apostles, the writing called Acts. And he is a bystander at the first martyrdom that we have written about in Christian scripture, and that's the martyrdom of, uh, of James, I mean Stephen, St. Stephen's Day. And then in Acts 9, we learn that Paul was given authority by the high priest in Jerusalem to arrest followers of Jesus in Damascus. I'm going to show you a map later. It's huge territory that, that he traveled. And he was supposed to bring these Jesus follows in Damascus to Jerusalem for persecution. Hmm. I can't do this biblical history and literacy stuff, so I'm I love doing it, I and know. I think it's important to do. I think that um, I think it's important. Well, it to do. helps us be there where this was happening. So here we are in what sixty A.D. Sixty. 
again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my wariness of spontaneous conversion moments notwithstanding, something incredible happened to Saul on the road. He had that, what William James, um, who's credited with being one of the first psychologists, and he was also a philosopher and theologian, called the spiritual experience that leaves one changed. James is widely considered the founder of psychology, in fact, and also of pragmatic psychology, uh, sorry, philosophy. In his seminal work, I don't know who has read this, but the varieties of religious experience, if you were, a, you probably had to read it. In, yes. Yes, in school. But anyhow, he explicates these experiences that reveal one's inner nature to oneself. He says they contain four essential qualities. So here's William James. The first quality is that they are ineffable, which means they're hard to talk about. A mystical experience defies expression, and words often do not do it justice. It's experienced, the experience is the understanding of it. So the second we try to put words to it, we're putting it in kind of dual mind. We're putting it inside of dual language. Remember that Saul was rendered silent for days. He, here we reach the limitations of language again. So there's no way to really know what went on in Saul's soul. All we can do is try to talk about it to help us experience what he might have gone through. And we tell it, we're going to tell you the story so that you can try to feel it in your own body. The second quality is that it contains a noetic quality. So even though mystical states are similar to states of feeling, more like a body sensation and a kind of overwhelm, they also seem to those who experience them to be states of deep knowing, too. The kind of deep knowing that, again, we can't put words to. They're experienced as states that allow direct insight into the depths of, our, of ourselves that are truly unplumbed. Our intellect doesn't have words for them yet. And maybe wisdom, growing in wisdom, is the ability to start to put words to them, to try and teach. <laughs> so they are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, and they carry with them what James describes as a curious sense of authority. There are two additional characteristics, and he says they feature sometimes less prominently in these spiritual experiences, but they're transient. In other words, we can't stay in the spiritual experience for the rest of our lives. We still have to stop at stop signs. We still have to go get groceries. We still have to make dinner, right? We, we're not, we can't stay in the spiritual experience when we're doing these sort of like works of the ego. So except in rare instances, they usually last maybe a half an hour, an hour, at most maybe two, he says. And there's a limit beyond which they fade into the light of common day. Memory of them is imperfect, but when they recur, they are immediately recognized. So again, Saul, who became Paul, could probably always put himself back on that road to Damascus. That's when something changed for him. So there's a development in this kind of ineffable, noetic, transient moment that the mystic is, is de developing a kind of deepening inner life. It just begins to happen. The fourth quality that James says is that they are passive. So what that means is that the mystic feels if, as if his own will were in abeyance, and indeed sometimes as if they were grasped and held by a superior power. In other words, the mystic or the person having the mystical experience is not doing anything to make it happen. He's like a vessel. And so that the vessel that is kind of being poured through. It's a form of self-transcendence. 
and the mystic will often say that she or he has merged with something greater than the self. I think it's also kind of like a merging of the self, oneness with the self. And any ordinary person can have a mystical experience. In this sense of something, it's a sense of something or someone drawing you forth from yourself and paradoxically into yourself, your true self. In such moments, we experience that oneness, a lack of separateness between ourselves and everything. Another way to phrase this is to become one with the nothingness. So I love these first words of Genesis, and this is from uh, the message. First this, God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. That nothingness, then, is not actually nothing, but it's our depth, the aspect of the self and our relatedness to others and our, the parts of ourselves that we don't yet know. The nothingness I like to think of as possibility. So Saul saw nothing, and then he began to see everything. In his blindness, the illumination of his soul had begun. So though he was a fervent persecutor of the followers of Jesus, Paul had this religious experience that completely turned his life upside down. It happened in or near Damascus. There are three and a half reportings of this in the Christian writings. They all differ a little bit, so it's kind of hard to know exactly what happened. I'm going to say it's three to five years after the death of Jesus. So Paul's history as a persecutor was brief. It was not something he did for a long time. And um, as I said, the, the book of Acts narrates the Damascus Road experience three times in different ways. But what they have in, store, in common is that while traveling to Damascus to arrest the followers of Jesus, Paul had this experience in which Jesus appeared to him as a living reality in the present moment. And, as, and this is really important, appeared to him as Lord. He's addressed that way in the various accountings of it. I'll read to you one in a minute. And he called Paul, this Jesus called Paul, to be his apostle. You know the difference between an apostle and a disciple. A disciple is someone who is a follower of a teaching or a teacher. An apostle is someone who is sent by that teacher to do the teacher's teaching. So Paul, though he never met Jesus, is going to consider himself, and he's going to argue for this position. He's going to argue that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And um, that became Paul's defining mission for the rest of his life. Now, I want to be clear. When Paul converted, had this conversion experience, he didn't convert to Christianity as we understand Christianity. Paul was a Jew. He remained a Jew for the rest of his life. He became a Christian Jew, and what he wanted was to include Gentiles into the Christian Jewish movement 
without them having to physically become Jews by being circumcised. That's the big argument of Paul that you will read in, in many of his letters. So Paul remained G Jewish, but he wanted those people who were called Gentiles or non-Jews to become part of the movement without becoming Jewish. And if you know the Christian writings well at all, you know that this caused a lot of trouble. Um, and it caused trouble where Paul went. It caused trouble within the Jesus movement. And eventually the movement split away from Judaism altogether. Paul, by the way, himself never writes his, about his conversion experience. I mean, he never narrates it. He refers to it, but he <laughs> doesn't tell the story. So according to the Acts story, Paul saw great light, and the great light identified itself as Jesus. And what he saw and experienced convinced him that he was wrong, and that the Jesus whom he had been persecuted, persecuting was not only alive, but was Lord. And the, the significance of this is that if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar isn't. That's why that affirmation of faith. And that's why these early Jesus followers got persecuted, because they would not give allegiance to Caesar. Caesar was fine. The Roman Empire was fine. You could have as many gods as you wanted to, but you still had to give allegiance to Caesar. And the followers of Jesus wouldn't do that, and that's why they were persecuted. Now, the obvious inference of this is that if Jesus is still alive and is Lord, it can only be because God has vindicated him. That God had said yes to Jesus and no to the powers that killed him. They were wrong. And Paul came to see that he himself had been wrong. And now Paul had been called to be Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul spent the rest of his life traveling back and forth between Asia Minor and Greece, spending much of his time in Corinth. I can't see this map. But you see that Jerusalem is in the, like the lower right-hand corner. And Rome is in the like, upper left-hand corner. And in the top part of the right of the map are places like Ephesus, Corinth, Thessalonica, and those places. Paul walked all these, to these places where he wasn't in a boat. He would go around, and uh, he spent much of his time in the upper right-hand quarter, quarter, quadrant of the map. In Corinth, Ephesus, he'd establish small groups of believers, and then he would spend time writing letters to these groups, trying to clarify misunderstandings, trying to settle disputes. Sometimes he had to flee cities because his conflict, his message started. Um, he was arrested several times. He was often beaten. He was thrown into prison more than once. He walked, as I said, thousands of miles, and despite I think it's Michelangelo's painting, or might, might be um, Rembrandt's painting of him being thrown off the horse on the road to Damascus. He didn't have a horse. Um, only military people and high-ranking people had horses. Paul walked everywhere he went. So, uh, and he traveled by ship and was shipwrecked at least three times. I just read a book that recounts, it's a fictional book, but it's a narrative um, taking place during World War II about uh, 
the British soldiers being on Malta and one of the British soldiers going to find the place where Paul, Paul's shipwreck happened yeah. on Malta. Yeah. Yeah. In the late 50s, Paul traveled to Jerusalem, which is in the lower right-hand corner of the map. And Paul claimed that he was a Roman citizen because of his birth, the birth of his father. And so after three years of house arrest in Jerusalem, he demanded to be treated like a Roman citizen. And so he was transported to Rome by boat. You can see how far away that was, how long it took to make it there. And in Crete, which is about in the middle of the mile map, was where Saul began being referred to as, as Paul. Um, so he's transported to Rome. He's again put in house arrest. As I said, there's no record in the Christian writing about what actually happened to him, but the tradition says that he was executed in the year 64 um, in, the, in the reign of Nero, so that Paul, like Jesus, was executed by the powers that be. All the beginning leaders of the Christian movement were executed. Jesus was executed. James was executed, Peter was executed, Paul was executed. I mean, it's a bleak beginning. Um, and, and when you, you know, if you didn't know anything about the movement and you go and sit and have dinner with one of these people at their love feast and say, tell me about Jesus. What, what happened to him? Sounds like a great guy. Well, he was killed. Oh, and who took his place? Well, Peter took his place. What happened to him? Oh, he was killed. And what about James? What, and it goes on and on and on. It's just so... With all of this about the incident, I want to read to you one version of it, and this is from Acts 9, and this is Eugene Peterson's translation. Pause for a second. If, it might be helpful to kind of just drop in, maybe close your eyes and just listen to the story, and again, kind of imagine being there. Imagine who you are, what perspective you're taking. You could be a bird watching from overhead. Just imagine where you are in this story. All this time, Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples, out for the kill. He went to the chief priest and got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. He set off. When he got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? He said, who are you, master? I am Jesus, the one you're hunting down. I want you to get up and enter the city. In the city, you will be told what to do next. His companions stood there dumbstruck. They could hear the sound, but couldn't see anyone. While Saul, picking himself up off the ground, found himself stone blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. He continued blind for three days. He ate nothing, drank nothing. There was a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. The master spoke to him in a vision Ananias? Yes, master, he answered. Get up and go over to Straight Avenue. Ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying. 
He's just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house and lay hands on him so he could see again. Ananias protested, Master, you can't be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown from the chief priest that give him license to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue. Go. I have picked him as my personal representative to Gentiles and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering that goes with his job. So Ananias went and found the house placed his hands on blind Saul and said, Brother Saul, the master has sent me, the same Jesus you saw on your way here. He sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. Brother, that part. Oof. So Saul's conversion could have been something as simple as that flash of light or as Ananias saying, hey, brother, I see you. Or maybe it was the small voice rattling around in his brain that got louder and louder, imploring him to reconsider, wanting these way followers dead. His conscience was catching up to him. Um, St. Ignatius was so inspired by this one thing that he read when he was on leave from the army that he dedicated all of his writings to it. He read, the glory of God is found in a human being fully alive. In this flash of light, I want to think that Saul became fully self-conscious, fully alive and aware of his own spiritual light such that it blinded him and stilled him. He moves from this kind of intellectual, egoic awareness, this us-them awareness, to a more mystical, spiritual awareness, that noetic, deep knowing that William James writes about. He becomes one with that nothingness. He enters into the nothingness. He can see nothing. And from which, from that nothingness, something more began to emerge. William James wrote somewhere, and I can't remember where, that that something more is what all of us are seeking. That may be the human experience, to seek that something more. Perhaps in this time of blindness, Saul was birthing his inner eye, and in this way, his ability to see what was truer than true. I'll repeat here. First, the nothing that was God. Second, he saw nothing but God. Third, in all things, he saw nothing but God. And fourth, when he saw God, he saw all things as nothing. Saul had this experience of integration, of integrating shadow with light. When I think about evil, I think evil is one of these great questions of philosophy and theology. Where does it come from and why does it exist? But I read some writing this last week that said evil is a transpersonal force that is also an essential part of the universe. It is a force that challenges and drives us to evolve. So evil drives us to be better. When we bring forth that self, that inner light, we weaken the force of evil. And Saul, who becomes Paul, 
begins to recognize these competing forces within him. He has to draw forth his own inner light. For three days he was blind. For three days he neither ate nor drank. For three days he was left with his own thoughts to consider what kind of life he had led up to this point and what kind of life he wanted to lead from this point forward. I'm going to guess that it took more time than that one moment on the road to Damascus. I think that's why this story is truer than true. The road to Damascus is lifelong, with no fixed end except for death. But the true compassion that's modeled for him, and I relate to Ananias in this story. I don't want to do it, Jesus. I don't want to go find him. <laughs> but then he does it anyway. And I hope that in this becoming that I can learn to be like Ananias. So even though what he does was harder than hard, maybe even the hardest thing, he goes to Saul, this man who has killed and plundered and watched while it happened, and he takes his face in his hands and he calls him brother. He says, brother, I see you. That would bring me to my knees with weeping. <laughs> I want to be like Ananias. I want to be able to call those who are different from me, who might be called enemies, brother, sister, friend. I want to hold their faces in my hands and see their inner light and love them into becoming the best version of themselves. So in, in uh, 1972, 73, uh, I was sitting in class with Harvey Cox. And Harvey Cox was not the first person I'd heard do this, but this was the most dramatic experience of it. We were studying a New Testament uh, class, and we would, had just finished doing the feeding of the multitude, which is six times in the Gospels. So you know something happened. Hmm. And <laughs> so Harvey Cox is saying, uh, who in the story do you identify with? How many of you identify with the hungering crowds? And, of course, people held their hands up. How many of you identify with the lad who had five loaves and two fishes? And people <laughs> held their hand up. How many of you identify with the disciples who didn't know what to do? Whatever. He went on. How many of you identify with Jesus? Not a hand went up. And Cox said, what's the purpose of your faith? That we don't identify with the healers and the Jesuses is a, is a problem. So I want to get you to, as Holly suggested, to use your imagination, active imagination here. Imagine that we sitting here, although this is a much larger group, than who mm. would have been gathered there. But imagine that we have gathered today to share a meal and um, tell stories, tell memories. We didn't have any written documents at that time, but people had memories and stories were developing. But the primary reason that we have gathered here today is that we have gotten the good news that the guy who was persecuting us has been struck blind. We're mm -hmm. off the hook. We're safe. The thing that we had worried so much about has been absolutely 
taken away from us. We are so relieved. And then, one of you gets up and goes out and lays hands on our sworn enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm glad one of us had the courage to do that. Mm. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here on Independence Day in some formation. Thank you. <laughs>